Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, let's start this episode with a joke. One each, finance joke. You go first. Well, the only one I've seen recently is, I've got a banking joke, but there's no interest. (laughs) (laughs) They're really bad. Not bad. I've got one for you. Yeah. What's the definition of a long-term investment? A short-term investment gone wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the Christmas Q&A episode for 2020. Yes, our last one for the year. And as you can tell, it has been a big year and we definitely need a break. (laughs) Yes, we do indeed. Uh, Enough of the finance jokes. So we've got some great questions that have come through our Facebook community. People have submitted their questions there or through the podcast at rast.com.au or even Instagram. You can do it anywhere you like. Uh, uh, before we get to it, as always, just remember that our answers to these questions are general advice only. So they're general in nature. They do not take into account any of your personal circumstance, situation, risk profile, goals, star sign, whatever your belief system is, your religion. <laughs> it doesn't take into account any of that. And we also highly encourage you to speak to a financial planner and make sure you read the product disclosure statement or PDS if we mention things like insurance, super, mm. managed funds, all those things. Please make sure you check it out. Investing is risky and finance can be risky at times too. So take your time and do your research. Yeah, do your research. That's the most important D-Y-O-R. <laughs> yes. It seems to be a cop out for a lot of people online who give crap advice, but seriously, make sure you speak to a professional if you are confused. Okay, so we've got some great questions coming in. Kate, uh, I think I'm probably going to answer this one, so maybe you can ask the question. Yes, this one came through Facebook Messenger. We're just We were just getting questions all over the place this month. So, g'day, Rast team. I've got shares in a company that's risen 263% in profit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Question is, are you able to, are you best to sell a portion of your shares and take some of the profits and reinvest it into a new company or just sell all the shares in the company? Well, this is a good problem to have. We don't know who this come from, but it's it's a good problem to have. Um, So, there are a few considerations here. If you've made a if you're sitting on 263% of gains, you're obviously thinking maybe I should take some off the table now, lock in mm. some profit, or you're thinking uh, maybe this has run its race and it's now time to move on to something better. So there's two ways that I would approach this. Um, and it comes back to uh, something called your investment thesis. Mm. So your investment thesis is basically your reason for investing in something. And this is what a lot of people don't do is really give time to this before you make the decision. So most people yeah. like trigger happy shoot first, ask questions <laughs> later. I'm not saying it happened here, but what we do at Rask and what we encourage every investor to do is write down your reasons for doing something in advance. Because then when things do go wrong or things start to look a bit shaky later on, you can come back to that and you can be like, well, this is the reason that I bought it. Does that still hold true? If it doesn't, you can get out. That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you kind of get out of jail free. So, okay. So there's two reasons that you would make a decision here. The first is that you have to know your investment thesis in advance. But there's also an important thing here around valuation and the difference between valuation and prices. Imagine your house goes up 263% in price. Imagine it's not a share. Imagine it's your house. Would you sell it just because it's gone up? 
the things that you would take into account are, well, it's actually a pretty good house and house prices are going up and I like this for the long term, so I'm going to keep holding it. You wouldn't sell the house or buy it or make a decision just because of the price. Mm. There has to be some other kind of yardstick. And so one of the things, one of the words, words of wisdom that I've always got is that from, from experts is water your, weed, uh, water your flowers, not your weeds. You <laughs> want to water the, the best companies in your portfolio, the best investments, give them more attention, mm. um, which is funny because we're taught from a young age by people who think they know what they're doing that buy low, sell high. Yeah. But oftentimes the best thing to do is to buy low and then just buy again. Um, so it really comes back to understanding the company, your reason for owning it, that's your thesis. If it is broken or even if it has been fulfilled, you might have said, and this might have been very prophetic, you might have sat down and said, I am buying this company because I want it to go up 263%. And then it gets to 263%, you're like, bingo. <laughs> if that's the case, then you that's your thesis. It's mm. done. Um, you can use that to inform you. But I would say just actually focus on the company or the ETF or whatever it is that you've, or the shares, focus on that first and foremost. Mm. Now, the second reason you would s- sell anything, in my opinion, because we talk about just accumulating great things, the old Robert Kiyosaki assets column thing, um, and that's for portfolio management. And the best and easiest way to think about this is, you know, you have a limited amount of money. So let's say, Kate, you've got a million dollars and uh, you've got, you know, $100,000 now in a company. So it's 10% of your portfolio. It's done really well for you. And you're thinking, well, actually, I think there's another investment that might be better now because I've held this one for a couple of years. It's done really well. I think there's something else. And that's mm. the way to think about this is as Chris Judd, uh, the footballer, the <laughs> AFL footballer, said to me is the way he thinks about it is he thinks about it like a team. And this is there are many investors that do this. They think about it like a team. You have your best players on the field at any one time. But then if one of them starts to show weakness or you're no longer happy with them, you substitute them and you bring someone else on. Mm. There's a fancy theory for this called opportunity cost in finance. But basically, if you find a better option, consider it. But mm. keep in mind that you might pay tax when you sell, right? Yeah. It's pretty yeah. So that's something. So for most people, you can think about round figures here. If you sell an investment, you're probably going to pay 30% capital gains tax or like a discounted rate if you've had it for a while. So just think about that. You've also got to overcome the tax drag that happens. So in summary, no matter what you do from here, I've had this problem both ways, been sitting on losers <laughs> or winners, is you almost always feel like you're going to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you do, to be honest, especially in the short term, you really don't know. Like I sold a company last uh, earlier this year, 2020, at $190 and now it's $900 less than yeah. six months later as a US company. So just write down your reasons for owning something in the first place. Write down your reasons why you sell it inevitably like this time and just own the decision and yeah. why you did it. Because either way, once on the day you sell, the next day it's either going to go up or down and you'll be either happy you sold some or you'll be sad that you didn't wait an extra day. Yeah. Um, so I think you just got to make the decision and go with it like it's too bad wasting time like regretting mm. what you could have done differently totally. but um yeah i mean a lot of people i often hear people go oh once it's up xyz percent i'll take my initial investment off the table i feel like that's quite a common yeah and common phrase yeah and it is and it's wrong because you're basing your decision on price which is totally mm-hmm. random in the short term yeah you know you don't go into you don't own a home just because you're like I'm going to wait for it to get to seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you don't think like that. You think this is a good investment. I don't know how long it's going to take to get to seven hundred thousand dollars, but I'm just going to own it. And so, yeah, um, 
we don't let like the price wag the dog mm. around here, um, like the decision making. So keep that in mind. Um, cool, good question, great question. It's a very hard one to answer. Um, so the next question comes from Lydia. It was kind of, I think it was directed at me in the first person. So mm-hmm. I'll read it and then you can answer it, Kate. I just wanted to thank you and Kate for the time and energy you put into the Australian Finance Podcast. You're very welcome, Lydia. It's both really informative and engaging. I was wondering if you could address how young people who do not have a stable income, i.e. full-time uni students who work the Christmas break, can grow their money when they don't have much to start with. Any tips or tricks on how to start would be greatly appreciated. Smiley face. I like this question. Thanks, Mm. Lydia. Kate, over to you. Yeah, I know a lot of my friends have struggled with this because they can go from not working that much during the year because they're busy with uni and then suddenly they go December and January, Christmas casual, full-time workload mm-hmm. and suddenly end up with quite a little bit, quite a bit of money. Um, so firstly, I'd, I'd focus on if you're just getting started from the beginning, um, if you've got any buy now, pay later debt, get rid of that if you've got some money this Christmas. Um, if you can set up your emergency fund for maybe a month or two of living expenses, if that's sort of Um, achievable for you, definitely do that. And if you can have a buffer account for any sort of unexpected bills coming up, definitely do that and potentially start considering using a 50, 30, 20% budget structure rather than fixed numbers. Because if your income varies by month and week, uh, it's very hard to keep changing, oh, $100 for food this week, $50 next week. So um, having sort of um, broad percentages is much easier to use. So finding a flexible system that can expand and contract based on whatever your income is. Um, And if you do have the chance to increase your workload over Christmas, definitely use that opportunity to put money aside for the rest of the year. So Mm. um, I know a lot of my friends just will work as much as possible over December, Jan, bit of Feb, uh, put that money aside so they can fund all of their uni costs and living costs and books for the year as well um, so they can drop down their hours during exam periods. Mm. It's a hard one, but there is um, a couple of benefits or there are a couple of benefits to being a uni student. You know, when we talk about 50, 30, 20 um, and paying expenses and all that sort of stuff, typically, I hope, unless you're one of those people that have to move for a uni, mm-hmm. it can actually be pretty cheap to get like to get over that cost hurdle. Yeah. And for living expenses, when we talk about emergency funds, you know, three, maybe probably six months or more in living expenses. If you're a uni student, you've got like a really low ramen number, like you're you're living on rice noodles Mm -hmm. and that's about it and maybe goon sacks. So like you can actually keep your costs really low. And it's actually what I find refreshing about it is that it's not, you know, it's not uncommon for people at uni to not have endless amounts of budget mm. so this is where your humility comes in right you, you can't you just can't spend money like someone who's fully employed can yeah and it's an unfortunate reality and it's really tough for australian students to go through this type of thing um but the, effectively what kate said there is the same rules apply right you just your budget's smaller mm. but you've got to keep those costs down while you can yeah um i would add one thing here and one thing that helped me during uni is just try and find online online freelance work. Mm. Do everything you can to try and find that work. Um, you know, Elance, um, all of the big ones, um, Freelancer, uh, Auto, what is it, uh, Airtasker. Yes. Um, all of these, all of these different sites can can help you make money. So, um, yeah, give yeah. that a shot. Just different ways to use your skills. That's it. Yep, you've got some. Um, it's crazy. Even Airta- if it's just assembling IKEA furniture for people, uh, yeah. that yeah. I would pay for. Yeah. Airtasker is a huge thing, like to make some extra cash here and there. So mm. maybe that's a little little um, 
nudge. Okay, so question from Neil in the Facebook group. Kate, maybe you can take this one. Yeah, absolutely. So when going through your five steps to picking an ETF, I think that might have been from one of our Rask Education courses or an article he's referring to. How important is picking an ETF that is a high dividend slash distribution yield in past performance? So I'm guessing Neil's gone onto the website, had a look at historical dividend payments for this ETF and um, wants to know how important it is. Yeah, so this is a two-part question. So I'll just say just at the start here, um, it's not really important to, to me. Um, mm, unless you're a retiree and really need yeah, income. If, if we, so we've designed a portfolio in our RASC ETF servers that um, is designed for people that can get more income from their investments. And effectively, what the way we think about it is you start with the same ETF. So you still have the best ETFs you can find. Mm. You just kind of mix and mash those best ETFs to try and find what you think is going to produce either more income or more growth or both if you can. So one of the things that you can do is you can go on to the, the ASX website. You can Google for ASX ETP investment products monthly. Mm. ASX ETP investment products monthly. And that will come up with a report and it's like a PDF, Neil, and you can go in there, it's in Excel too, and it will show you historical yields of ETFs. Now, that's over the last year, but the problem is they're not always consistent. Sometimes mm. ETFs and managed funds have to pay out income for certain tax reasons. Well, there's a bonus. Yeah. Like, I know last year a lot of the, the large normal dividend stocks did have bonus dividends, so suddenly you might have a spike. Yeah. So you definitely want to look how it has been trending over time. Yeah, and you can visit the ETF issuers website for that. Mm. But um, the the basics, if I could just be so crass, is to say that you know if you're investing in a blue chip share ETF, so an ETF that invests in like the largest Australian shares, you're probably going to get a pretty high income. Mm. And compare that to something like um, a small cap ETF or an ETF that invests in international markets where the dividends typically aren't as high, you're not going to get as much mm. income. Um, I guess it depends horses for courses from a portfolio construction, but also what you want that ETF to do. For me personally, it's not a major focus, Yeah, but it's just a bright product of owning some of these really good ETFs in Australian shares. The second part of the question though. Yeah. Oh, one other comment I wanted to add is if you're oh, yeah. filtering ETFs by dividend yield, you can sometimes end up with an ETF that you might not quite want. There's ETFs that maximize mm. Uh, dividend yield in Australia and they do that through different strategies but sometimes they cannibalize on the capital so um, you might have no capital growth just to give you a uh, maximize the income so definitely I wouldn't have that unless you're a retiree and specifically looking for income I franking credits and that yeah I wouldn't be focusing on I'd be finding an ETF that works for you and what Mm. you need and what your parameters are and um, suits your investment profile rather than looking at yield as a filter. So basically, don't just rely on the historical yield. Go back a few years. That was the yeah. first piece of advice. The second one is um, make sure that you understand what you're getting invested in because it's sometimes robbing Peter to pay Paul or yeah. in this case, robbing Neil to pay Neil. Um, and that's that's often what can happen. Yeah. Is or it might not be the product you, you want. It could be a product that some ETFs are designed for very specific demographic or particular mm. person um so there might not be something that you want to be holding for 20 years yeah if you find an ETF, just this make this simple if you find an etf what Kate's saying if you find an etf that has apparently a high historical dividend yield then go and look at the share price of that etf because mm. if the share price is going down quickly yeah. you might only be trading 
um, an income for capital gain losses or capital losses. So mm. that's something to consider too. Okay, there was a second part of this question. Yes. Yeah, so the second part was also Owen has made a couple of comments that not all stocks or ETS have to pay dividends. Does that mean in a boardroom they can look at their profits and even if the company makes money, they can decide that in that quarter or yearly distribution, they're not going to pay a dividend this time round? Or do they have to state when they first enter the stock exchange if the stock or ETF gives out dividends at all? Maybe this is a good question. Um, maybe did you want to answer the ETF component that I'll answer the stock side of things? So does an ETF have to pay dividends? Uh they usually pass on the income. So because of the structure, it's a unit trust, so they'll pass through the income, but it doesn't always happen like on a regular basis. So there have been circumstances I've seen where an ETF, uh, it didn't have enough income to make it viable to pay out a dividend. So they just released a statement to the market saying they're not paying a dividend this um, half yearly because it wasn't viable because um, there's quite a cost involved in the administration because you've got to release statements and calculate mm. and everything like that. So generally, um, if you're investing in an ETF that um, has exposure to the top 200 Australian companies, you'll you'll get a dividend. Um, but I think we mentioned this in relation to probably, I think we were discussing like commodity gold ETFs a, a while back. It might be Chris, Chris Wells. Yeah, because yeah. um, not everything that, not all ETFs are invested in assets that are going to pay out income. Mm. So- uh, I mean, it's quite common for Australian companies to have a dividend, but um, in overseas, different markets, um, it's less common. Um, mm. Even the timing is different as well. So when they enter, oh, you'll, you'll discuss the stock exchange, but when they enter the market, they usually release a product disclosure statement and that will say how often the ETF um, pays a dividend, but then they'll also usually say it at the discretion of the company. Yeah, So so basically... Um, the ETF is just a, a way to get mm. exposure to something and whatever that something is will depend on the income that you get from the ETF. It's the same for managed funds. If the managed fund is investing in shares that don't pay income, you wouldn't expect a high income from yeah. that managed fund. But um, for shares, there is an example. For example, Apple, which is a company that I currently own at the time of the recording. Um, and it has, I think, from memory, over $150 billion of cash, but they don't pay that to you as a mm -hmm. shareholder. You know, They don't split it up and go, here, we're going to give it all back. They want to keep it for whatever reason. Maybe they want to keep it to maybe if they ever have to pay for an acquisition or invest to launch a new product or whatever. The board of directors has the right to not pay a dividend. Um, there are certain instances where they can't pay dividends for like financial reasons. So they they could be going out of business if they don't have enough assets to cover their liabilities. You know these types of things they won't. They're not allowed to. Mm. But it's up to them. And what they will do um, if you go if you find their annual report or their media release, which typically is in your brokerage account when they release their annual report, they'll say um, there's a dividend of this much on this date, etc. But then they might also have a dividend policy that's in the annual report. Well, they might just say in the media release the the board of directors resolved not to collect, not to pay a dividend to mm. shareholders this year. And this is the thing: dividends are not guaranteed. You can look at historical figures. You know, go into your brokerage account, go to Morningstar, go to any of those data providers, and you will see companies that have a consistent track record of dividends. That still doesn't mean they'll pay one next year because they're not guaranteed. But it's a really good question because dividends can be oh so juicy when they do roll in. Mm. So um, yeah, if you if you're new to dividends, make sure you keep an eye out for um, where your dividends are going. If you're getting by mm. check, which is pretty strange these days, you might be. Just make sure you open all your mail, 
go to computer share, go to link market services, all the big share registries and register to have your dividends paid as cash or a dividend reinvestment plan. Yeah. So I guess in essence, the if it's a direct share, they've got a lot more flexibility the board have on whether they pay dividends or not. Um, but an exchange traded fund, the provider such as like Vanguard or beta shares will say whether this particular ETF pays a dividend and that ETF, the unit trust will just pass through the income that they receive mm. um, and then you'll get a statement as well. So mm. um, I guess it's a, it's a little bit different there. Yeah, we try and summarize the because the, the, the ETF providers sometimes bury the how often it pays a dividend. Yeah. So we tried to summarize that on our best ETFs website. If you just go for the page that's got the ETF that you're looking at, it will say quarterly, annually, whatever. Just have a look at that. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, question. This is a good one. Question from Normus in our Facebook group who says, thanks, guys. Love your podcasts. I've been a listener for six months. Hmm, one of the earlier listeners. I like mm. it. I'd like to get your take on what would happen if the interest rate was to go below zero. How would it affect the economy and the financial institutions? Would it be safer to take all of your savings out of the bank? Kate, I feel like you love talking about negative interest rates. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess all I wanted to add is that having the cash under the mattress isn't going to be much help yeah. in any circumstance. And and I've heard of situations where grandparents have buried a sack of cash or gold in the back lawn. And yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> My grandmother, my Polish grandmother, used to bury, um, bury cash in the backyard. Yeah. Years later, we would find like when we were digging <laughs> it up or whatever, we would find little bits of cash here and there. Um, okay, so negative interest rates. Uh, let's just start with the answer. Uh, would it? Af- how would? How would it affect? Um, would it be safer to take your money out of the bank? I wouldn't take my money out of the bank. No. Um, because the end of the day, the society can't function without banks so there's no way that they the government would let them go under and i imagine the deposit guarantee which currently is in place for some of the banks that have that are registered um which you can check online there's no, it's not going to change because people still want that surety mm. um what you'll find is that interest rates if they're not already at zero for your term deposit or savings account they'll probably go pretty close to it yeah i don't know exactly if they'll go actually negative as a term deposit because it's funny because even though I just said that the government provides that guarantee to the banks, there technically is risk involved with the term deposit. So you mm. sh- it shouldn't really go below zero, but it could. Um, so two things here, two things I want to point out in, in regards to how it could affect the economy and the financial institutions. Firstly, um, if you look at Europe, Europe's had negative interest rates. Um, there's been some really interesting things going on over there over the past 10 to 20 years with the whole European bloc, but they're okay. You know, of course we had like austerity and some weird geopolitical tensions in the early 2010s. Mm. Um, if you remember, you know, Greece was in kind of a world of hurt. So I think it was called, was it the the pigs? Portugal, Portugal Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Mm. Um, these nations really uh, fell, fell in tough times. So, um, you know, they came through and they're all right. So I wouldn't be super worried about it. Of course, it's going to change things. Your mortgage rate will come down and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think it changes the simple important fact about life and money in general is that you have to take risk to get a return. So you've mm. got to invest. So even if interest rates were to go from where they are to negative, I think that would only be provide more support for investments. Because when remember when interest rates fall, what the RBA, which is the central bank here in Australia, is trying to get you to do is to invest that money 
because then it creates more production and more everything for the economy, mm. which then creates more wages, which then pushes uh, inflation up, which then means that interest rates go up. Mm. So it kind of balances itself out. Um, the second thing that I want to bring your attention to is this thing called real interest rates. It's such an economic and economist <laughs> thing. Real interest rates. So interest rates, as we know them, when you get them from the bank, let's say you got a 1% term deposit, you think, okay, I'm getting 1%. Well, if that is in a term deposit for a year, you would think, okay, I'm going to get 1% more. I'm going to have 1% more from today and a year from today. Well, no, you're not mm. actually. Because what is money? Money is just a store of wealth and a way to transfer and pay for things. But if all of the things that you would be buying in a year from now have gone up more than 1%, yeah. you've actually gone backwards. So that's why we call it real interest rates because it has to adjust for inflation. So um, actually as it stands, I was just looking at the RBA website and we were recording this in mid-December. Um, the cash rate or interest rate according to the RBA is 0.1%. That's the, the, what the banks mm. can lend at. And then inflation, which is the, the amount that your money's getting eaten away at every year is 0.7%. So 0.1% for interest, 0.7% for inflation or the cost of your coffee from this year to the next. Yeah. So you're actually going backwards if you don't earn more than 0.7% at the moment. So technically, Normus, we already have real negative interest rates. Mm. Um, you just don't think about it like that because most people forget about inflation. So, and, and I mean, hey, we're all right. The stock market's doing all right. The property market's... <laughs> going too high too fast which is a probably a massive concern for me but um yeah i'm i mean we're doing all right i think if you're an investor what you would want to watch out for is companies that are taking on a lot of debt and personally you wouldn't want to be taking on a lot of debt because even though interest rates are low they might not stay low forever so they might go negative they might go up just be mindful of that too um so the financial institutions in summary should be fine the economy should be fine it actually should be a good thing for jobs and wages if we can get to that hmm. and you just sort of think over the last hundred years what our economy and our financial institutions have gone through and what storms they've weathered yeah they're quite point. resilient yeah really if you look at the last hundred and whatever years we've had depressions recessions wars a uh, couple of wars. <laughs> yeah, some. Oh, yeah, you know, some great things on uh, Channel Ten. Um, so, you know, we, you know, it, it, bad things happen, but the system is pretty resilient. We have a yeah. lot of good regulation here in Australia. Um, you know, probably the biggest risk is geopolitically, but even beyond that, um, you know, you can diversify. You can do lots of things. Yeah. Speaking of diversification, what a segue, <laughs> Kate, over yeah, to you. So a question from Braden in our Facebook group was, is it better to v diversify your portfolio with more money into fewer shares slash ETFs, so less than 10, or less money into a wider range of shares slash ETFs, aka more than 10? Did you want me to so, take a step at it first or did you want to go? I, I think you to answer this, you kind of got to separate it into shares and ETFs because – I think the answer would be different. I think if I'm looking from an ETF perspective, I don't need more than 10 ETFs to build a portfolio. Um, I think yeah. like if you're over five ETFs, if we're just talking about your core portfolio and not maybe a tactical or thematic ETF, you're you're probably doubling up and overlapping and holdings. So um, mm -hmm. like if you're investing in multiple Australian ETFs, you're probably covering the top companies a few times. Yeah. Um, so thinking about 
I think if you're just building an ETF portfolio, more than 10 may be straying on the over-diversification up yeah. to the point where it's causing you doubling up on holdings, causing you additional administration because you've got to keep on track. Mm. You've got to put your tax file number in. You've got to make sure you know where the dividends are going. You've got to um, make sure you provide all this information to the tax office. Mm. And also yeah. if you want to add to your holdings, then you've got to go, oh, which which one do I add to this time? And it's going to cost you additional in brokerage. Yeah. Uh, good point. You kind of just summarized all that pretty well, Kate. Um, yeah. So when we built our portfolios for our subscription services, what we come up with in the core portfolio was seven ETFs. Mm. But the the ETFs, those were seven ETFs that could be used. So they wouldn't be used for every version. Like in the balanced option, it would only yeah. have like four or five in the conservative option, it might have four or five. And in the growth option, it might have four or five. But the seven that we chose were kind of like those core pillars that would be, you'd have one in the growth option, but not in the defensive option, but they might have similar ETFs in the balanced option. So that gives you some context. Um, so from diversification point of view, um, as long as you're buying really good ETFs, it shouldn't have that much of an impact going from five to 10. I don't even know what you would, like you want Australian shares, you want international shares. Um, you might have a different type of international or different type of Australian shares, like you're yeah, mentioning thematic be, or whatever. Or it might be hedged, unhedged. Yeah, maybe something like that. You might have one fixed interest ETF, like a bond ETF. Mm -hmm. um, if you're so inclined, maybe a gold ETF. Uh, property infrastructure, Australia or, and international, that's quite yeah. common in the robo-advisor portfolios. Yeah, true. And then, so we're probably about six or seven, but this is like, we're also toying with some thematic ETFs here. Yeah. Um, you might, if you want to be thematic as well, you might look at Europe, although you, pardon me, you could just get an ETF that does the whole world yeah. if you wanted to, um, or you might want to have a particular focus on emerging markets, which is very popular. Mm. Or small cap, though I think that ETF can be quite challenging due to the illiquidity of it. Mm. And so there you go. You, get, you Maybe you get to 10, but that's including thematic ETFs. So if we're just talking about the core portfolio, it doesn't need to be that big. There's one or two ETFs here in Australia, frankly, uh, Braden, which is what I suggest to friends and family, which is just one ETF that does it all. Yeah, there's, uh, a, there's a couple of providers it, that you can yeah. find online that offer yeah. those ETFs. And okay, so now that's the kind of common sense answer to the question. Um, let's just talk about different types of diversification and risk. So there are two types. Kate, over to you. I'm talking about, <laughs> you're putting me <laughs> on the spot here. Uh, we were talking before the podcast about systematic risk and then also comparing that to systemic risk just to be even more confusing. But um, yeah, so systematic risk, so market risk versus non-systematic risk, uh, so specific risk. So um, if you're buying too much in one sector, so yep. um, I think Owen's example here is what, buying 10 houses in one street or suburb that's prone to floods or bushfires. So yeah. um, if it all goes, if that whole suburb implodes and you lose it all. Yeah, because that's, yeah. So I put Kate on the spot here. You did a really good job of answering that. So imagine, so there's two different types of risk and one of them cannot be diversified. And that's this idea of market risk or systematic risk. Mm. So um, let's use that example. Imagine you're a wealthy individual and you want to buy 10 houses and you buy them all on one street in the same suburb. If that street is next to a bushfire and it catches fire, you've lost all of your investment 100%. Um, from one risk, which yeah. is a specific risk to that street, which is a bushfire, 
right? But now imagine that you own 10 houses around the whole of the country, but the entire property market in Australia falls. There's no way to avoid that if you wanted to invest in property. So that's the market risk. That's just Mm -hmm. a general market risk. So let's just take a share market example. If you invest in only, I don't know, bank shares and something really bad happens to the banking segment of the market, you that's poor diversification because you could have avoided that if you spread it out over the whole entire different type of shares in, that mm. are available in the market, the whole market. Um, so that's you know that's trying to minimise um, that specific risk that might apply just to banks. Yeah. But if the whole share market falls, i.e., market risk, mm. there's there's no avoiding that. So yeah. So systematic risk, a market crash, and all of your holdings in your portfolio are affected. And non-systematic risk, so the specific risk is where if you'd invested only in tech stocks and there was a tech crash, but the rest of the market was fine, but you hadn't diversified. Exactly. So that's there is one that we can avoid, which is the specific stuff going wrong. Um, there's one that we can't avoid, which is market risk. So mm. just some words of wisdom here on the end. Um, if you had a share portfolio as opposed to an ETF portfolio, we said maybe five ETFs would probably be enough. But for shares, you'd probably want to own a fair bit more than that. Mm. Um, so in the old stockbroking land, there used to be this thing, the race to 30, um, which was how quickly can you get 30 shares in your portfolio effectively? Yeah. Because they said that once you get to around 30 shares, the benefits of diversification kind of wear off. Yeah. But if you know what you're doing, and there are many good investors who I know that know what they're doing, they would happily own five or 10 shares because they understand the specific risks that are applied to each mm. of those companies. And they would say, well, if that one fails, this other one has nothing to do with that industry, so it's not going to yeah. be affected. And even if the market falls, I'm happy to cop that. But um, basically, after 10 investments, the there's studies that show about 70% of that um, specific risk can be eliminated. After 30, you don't really get much benefit. Yeah. Now- there is one other thing. I know we've gone a bit geeky here at the end. There's one other thing here which I want to um, get across to people. Even though we say race to 30, and there are camps for and against more diversification, there is another study that found that only 4% of companies on the stock market account for all of the outperformance of the stock market over like fixed interest or term deposits. So 4% of companies on the entire stock market, that's like a needle in a haystack. Mm. So people say then, well, why don't you just buy more shares and hopefully one in you know, every 25 that you buy is one of those 4%. Yeah. That can work too. So it's, it's pretty, pretty much up to you. With ETFs, you don't need to do that much and you wouldn't want to because it gets a bit of a burden. With shares, you'd probably want a bit more. Mm, I think an interesting way I've seen this myself is each year I set myself the challenge. I've been doing it for a few years of buying uh, not buying buying fictionally. Uh, I just sort of write it, track it in an online portfolio manager, but I get one stock code for every letter of the alphabet and I put <laughs> $1,000 in each one. So I start around $26,000. And after 12 months, it's really interesting to check in. Like there's some amazing ones that went up 100, 200, 300%. And then you'd think, oh, the portfolio must have done really well overall. But then if you look at some of the losers, you only need a few really bad ones and then just a whole lot of average ones in the middle to bring your returns down to what you could have got with an ETF anyway. So I think it's that's an interesting exercise if you want to try it yourself just to see that, yeah, you might pick a few great ones, but if you have a large enough pile, you're going to have some duds and you're just going to have a lot of average stuff that maybe goes up a couple of percent, down a couple of percent, doesn't really do much Um, or maybe even uh, delists or something like that. So overall- 
even with 26 stocks, which you'd think, oh, that's quite diversified, you can end up with a very average return yeah. over a 12-month period. I like it, Kate. Good example. Okay, so that's the end of the question and answer session. Um, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. We'll be back in 2021 with our next Q&A episode. Yes. So send any questions our way via Insta at Rask Australia. Our Facebook community, we'll put the link in the description mm-hmm. or podcast at raskrask.com.au. Yep. We love hearing from you, Kate. As always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.